political regimes. The people of different civilizations have different views on the relations between God and man, the individual and the group, the citizen and the state, parents and children, husband and wife, as well as differing views of the relative importance of rights and responsibilities, liberty and authority, equality and hierarchy. Huntington did not write those words until 1993, but already, four years earlier, many had seen in the battle over the satanic verses just such a civilizational struggle. On one side of the fault line stood the West, with its liberal democratic traditions, a scientific worldview, and a secular, rationalist culture drawn from the Enlightenment. On the other was Islam rooted in a pre-medieval theology, with its seeming disrespect for democracy, disdain for scientific rationalism, and deeply illiberal attitudes on everything from crime to women's rights. All over again, the novelist Martin Amis would later write, the West confronts an irrationalist, agnostic, theocratic, idiocratic system which is essentially and unappeasably opposed to its existence. Amos wrote that while still in shock over 9-11. The germ of the sentiment was planted much earlier in the Rushdie affair. Shocked by the sight of British Muslims threatening a British author and publicly burning his book, many people started asking a question that in 1989 was startlingly new. Are Islamic values compatible with those of a modern, Western, liberal democracy? The Bible, the novelist, feminist and secularist Faye Weldon wrote in her pamphlet Sacred Cows, provides food for thought, out of which you can build a decent society. The Quran offers food for no thought, it is not a poem on which a society can be safely or sensibly based. It forbids change, interpretation, self-knowledge, even art, for fear of treading on Allah's creative toes. Or, as the daytime TV chat show host and one-time Labour MP Robert Kilroy Silk put it, if Britain's resident ayatollahs cannot accept British values and laws, then there is no reason at all why the British should feel any need, still less compulsion, to accommodate theirs. Even those who had originally welcomed Muslims into this country were having second thoughts. As one of Britain's most liberal home secretaries, Roy Jenkins had, in 1966, announced an end to this country's policy of assimilation and launched instead a new era of cultural diversity coupled with equal opportunity in an atmosphere of mutual tolerance. One of the first expressions of what became known as multiculturalism. Nearly a quarter of a century later, the now ennobled Lord Jenkins mused in the wake of the burning book that, in retrospect, we might have been more cautious about allowing the creation in the 1950s of substantial Muslim communities here. 
I had watched the burning of the satanic verses with more than a passing interest. Like Salman Rushdie, I was born in India, in Secunderabad, not far from Rushdie's own birthplace of Mumbai, or Bombay as it was then, but brought up in Britain. Like Rushdie, I was of a generation that did not think of itself as Muslim, or Hindu, or Sikh, or even as Asian, but rather as black. Black was for us not an ethnic label, but a political badge, although we never defined who exactly could wear that badge. Unlike our parents' generation, who had largely put up with discrimination, we were fierce in our opposition to racism, but we were equally hostile to the traditions that often marked immigrant communities, especially religious ones. Today, when people use the word radical in an Islamic context, they usually have in mind a religious fundamentalist.